Well, here we are. Uh, I am on my way back from fly fishing for a week in Patagonia. And uh, here at the Santiago Airport. I've already had one short flight this morning. And uh, now I've got a bit of a layover before I do the long flight home. Uh, back to Seattle, Washington, through Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, and frankly, the travel really isn't that bad. Um, so on the podcast today, I am right here at the airport, just coming off this trip, and I want to record this now while all this stuff is so fresh in my mind, because it was an awesome trip, and uh, there's just a ton to share. Um, but before I kind of dive into the trip, a couple things. If you want to see photos from the trip, scroll back, uh, go look at and follow Red's Fly Shop on Instagram, and then you could see in the last week of February 2020, you can see a lot of the photos that will accompany this. So it'll help make a lot of this make sense. Number two, if you're afraid this is just going to be all about, you know, one big sales pitch to come to Patagonia with us, don't worry. Just weather through a few of the, the, the testimonials, sales pitch stuff. There is going to be some excellent trout fishing advice that you can apply anywhere Patagonia gives you everything in the form of, of trout fishing from spring creeks to giant glacial lakes uh, and everything in between. We see it, we get to witness a lot of trout behavior here where you can actually see the fish, how they react, what they do, and these guides are just spectacular. I mean, they're among the world's best, the, fi- the finest trout guides in the world. So uh, anyway, hang in there. Uh, if you haven't already, follow us on YouTube, follow us on Instagram and Facebook uh, as well. Follow Red's Fly Shop, and uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. So, my second trip down south, uh, and, you know, Patagonia always seems super out of reach for me, uh, you know, money-wise, and uh, just travel and all that stuff, but the travel is, frankly, not that bad, um, because there's no, like, little commuter flights and any of that baloney with where I'm going. Uh, I fish with uh, the crew at the Cinco Rios Lodge, and that, that group... Sebastian Galilei actually owns two lodges. Uh, it's called the Estancia del Zorro, which is in the high pompous, you know, the high kind of alpine mountains uh, of Chile. That's how locals say it. So forgive me if I sound annoying. Uh, of Chile. And, uh, and then the Cinco Rios Lodge, which is right on the edge of the town of Coyhaique, which is kind of a famous fly fishing outpost. So he has two lodges and... Uh, I actually fished and stayed in both lodges this week, as did the group I took. And then I went and did a little campamento uh, at the out camp that they have about two hours north of there to try to hit a couple of the trophy spots uh, that are a little bit too far away for a single drive. So I actually slept out one night in these beautiful yurts. Uh, you have to check out our Instagram page to, to see that or just visit our webpage. Anyway, fantastic trip. We went the fourth week of February, which is like, let's just say it's the equivalent of, equivalent of August. Uh, so that's one really cool thing. When it's February up north, we get to go south, and uh, we get to enjoy August and dry fly fishing and hopper fishing, and it's light till 9 p.m. Uh, it is a really cool thing in February for a Pacific Northwest guy like me to enjoy those long days. So... Uh, let me do a brief summary on the travel, because that's always one question. If you're seriously contemplating doing this, which you absolutely should, you'll be blown away. It's awesome life experience, great fishing, great culture, just a really neat thing to be able to see South America. So you should totally do it. So let me go through the travel real quick, and then we'll get to the fishing. So travel-wise, coming out of Seattle, 
Uh, I go from Seattle to Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, I left Seattle at 12 p.m. and uh, flew down to Dallas-Fort Worth at about a two and a half hour layover. Flew nine hours from Dallas-Fort Worth to Santiago. Uh, I had a three or four hour layover and then I was in, uh, and then I flew uh, down to Balamacita, which is about two and a half hours. So pretty much a straight shot all the way down. The, uh, the flight from the U.S. to Santiago is always overnight and uh, the airlines anymore do a pretty good job. It's comfortable uh, and I have no, no problem with the, the overnight flight. I sleep as well on the overnight flight as I do in a strange hotel if I have to like overnight some more. So anyway, we're in, it's a long day of travel, but we get down to Balmaceda, which is just outside the town of Koyaiki, and uh, get picked up by the lodge. Drive about 40 minutes to the lodge, and, uh, you know, we have cocktails waiting for us, great Chilean hospitality, and uh, we get settled in that night and kind of go through an orientation of what the week's going to be like, have cocktails, an amazing dinner. Um, forgive me for posting food pics on our Instagram story, but... It's just like the food's spectacular. They just they knock it out of the park, and it's all like, you know, there's a lot of lamb, there's beef. Uh, if you are a vegetarian, you will not be that impressed by the food because it is for it's for people who like meat. <laughs> That's what they do in Chile. They raise a lot of sheep and a lot of cattle. Um, so we get settled in the lodge that first night, and then we fish our brains out for six days. Uh, with this group of guides, if you are concerned about like fishing time and fishing value, that need not be a concern of yours. You will be fished out. Uh, these guys fish super hard. Um, yeah, super duper hard. A couple of tips on airplane travel. Um, you know, I on these long trips where I'm bringing waders and boots and a lot of stuff, uh, I check my rods, and my reels. I just trust my bag's going to get there because. It doesn't do me a lot of good to show up with rods and reels, but no waders and boots. So if my check bag is delayed, you know, I, I need clean underwear and waders more than I need a rod. I can borrow a rod uh, from somebody. Um, so I check my rods on these long trips. Um, I tend to carry my rods on for the trips where I'm not reliant on anything else in that bag. So like a saltwater trip, I can fish in shorts and sandals if I need to, and it's kind of nice to have my rods. So that's kind of the, the deciding point. If I have... If I have gear that's reliant on other gear outside of rods and reels, like waders and boots, I generally just check my rods and put it all in one package. And it's simple, moving through the airport is fast. I carried uh, on literally just my fish pond sling pack. In that, I've got a change of clothes, book, some uh, noise-canceling headphones, and uh, I carry my passport and uh, most of my cash in my left front pocket, my cell phone in my right front pocket. I never take those two out of there because my cell phone's got most of my itinerary information on there. I do print copies, but I pretty much go electronic anymore for all of my boarding passes and everything. So uh, what else I got in there? I got a neck pillow, a toothbrush and a little tube of toothpaste. That's money. If you are on long travel itinerary and you're flying overnight and lots of layovers, there is something about brushing your teeth to help you feel like a human being again. Uh, in fact, I just brushed. Uh, before this podcast, you wouldn't have to smell my stinky breath. Um, so that's kind of my carry-on routine. I bring a hooded sweatshirt, uh, change clothes, you know, good book, and then I download some videos on Netflix uh, to keep me busy on the airplane. Uh, it, it helps me really enjoy the flight. So the, the plane travel doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, as far as tackle goes, well, let me just get into the fishing. So um, 
so we get in the lodge, stay the night, we get up the next morning, and uh, I work as the travel host, our host, if you elect to do one of these trips with us, which I absolutely think you should, and you should get a book before it fills up. We'll be doing two weeks next year uh, again. We did two weeks this year, two weeks next year. Get on the trip. Go with the host. Um, we'll help you make the most of it. So I work with the head guide. Um, we get up early in the morning. Head guide and I just kind of go through the daily fishing program. And this itinerary, we stayed three nights at the Cinco Rios Lodge, which is a big kind of like, I'll just say Colorado-style ski lodge. That's what it looks like. It's big. It's beautiful. It's giant. Everybody gets their own king-size bed, literally their own king-size bed. Great food. It's just great hospitality. It's right on the edge of the town of Koyaiki. So from the first lodge, the, the head guide and I, Lalo, um, he and I set up a fishing program, and he knows what to do. Um, he tries to rotate anglers. I do a quick kind of read of my audience and say, hey, you know, what did you dream about most when you were coming to, to fish in Patagonia? Some will say, like, hey, I want to wade fish rivers. Some will say, you know, I really want to try some of those glacial lakes. And some say, you know, I just want to float a big river. We'll make that happen. Uh, so he and I'll he and I'll assign guides and anglers. The guides have the latitude to do whatever it takes to help you have a great time. They utilize every kind of boat imaginable, from inflatable drift boats to like traditional NRS otter rafts. Uh, but probably their favorite boat are the catarafts um, that they run uh, outboard engines on, so they can row them, or they can use a little jet jet pump on an outboard engine to go up rivers and then row back down, uh, or motor across lakes and then use the oars to, to keep you in position for fishing. So the guys have a ton of different gear and they have access to all these different boats and they leave a lot of the boats in the popular destinations. So you don't even have to launch a boat or tow a boat, uh, which is super handy. So uh, I'll go through my trip. So day one, uh, Keith and I, Keith was kind of my fishing partner for the week. We took off and we did what they called uh, the upper jet, which I did not get a chance to do on my first trip and uh, we put the boat was already in the water on the Paloma River uh, and uh, so we rallied over there with our guide Finya was our guide day one and we jammed over there and we were, were still here in time for the Cantaria beetle hatch and uh, so that was my goal I did last year was uh, an uh, an even or an odd numbered year so the Cantaria beetle was not highly present but on the even numbered years the Cantaria beetle is very present so I really want to fish these big beetles, and that was just the place to do it, apparently. So we jam over there, and uh, one thing I'll point out, like you can say, if you're toying with the idea of doing this trip, is a, a substantial piece of value is just the drives, the to and from drives fishing. Um, these guides are willing to work, and they're willing to drive. So we left the lodge at about 8.15 or so, and it took us about an hour, 20, hour and 30 minutes uh, we lollygagged a little bit on the way because I was looking around, want to take some pictures and stuff. But the drives in the morning and evening are just awesome because you get to drive through the Patagonia countryside, you know, into the mountains and up and down various valleys and along different rivers and creeks. And it's just beautiful. It's exciting. Uh, you know, the drive was really great. I'd never been to this particular destination. And uh, the boat was already waiting for us in the water. And it was really pretty cold and windy in the morning. Uh, I was wearing like uh, like kind of a Sims middleweight pant under my waders, and uh, I had an insulated vest on and a wading jacket. Um, we do get a significant amount of wind in Patagonia, 
So I won't sugarcoat it. You're going to cast in the wind. You're going to wear, uh, you know, a windbreaker type jacket a lot. Uh, just to knock the wind down. It's not an icy cold wind like we get in the north country, but, um, you get, just get these, the real, you know, real sustained winds. Um, but it was kind of cold and there was another, it's rare to see another boat. I've never fished right near anybody there, but there was another boat that Finya saw go by. Uh, the guy was, uh, no, he wasn't towing it, but he had the oars in the back of his truck and it's just a country road. Think of like, the a real rough gravel road going up this giant river valley, glacial river. The guy drove by. Finney said, "Hey, let's. We're gonna wait. He's gonna put in a little ways up from us. So we're gonna we're gonna wade fish here a while and let the guy clear and give him a little space." And uh, so I was like, "Hey, that sounds great." So we wade fished about the first hour and a half or two, which was great because I love to fish on foot. That is, anymore, I like the solitude. I like the peace and quiet. I like the guidance of the guide, but I don't need him to tell me what to do all the time. Uh, and I, I do appreciate their wisdom. I learned a ton on this trip. But uh, Finya had us wade fishing for the first hour and a half or so, and I caught oh, one rainbow and a couple of small browns, nothing significant. But got a couple of fish knocked out on my beetle pattern uh, that my son had tied. And I'm officially going to name that thing the Patagonia beetle. I got a couple of minor modifications I'm going to make, but that thing will eventually be for sale on our website, and that thing will kick ass anywhere. Uh, I learned a couple of things about tying that and fishing it on this trip from the guides. So it worked great. I probably could have fished that same fly the entire week uh, and been real successful. But Wade fished a while, eventually we jumped in the boat, Finya jammed us up around the corner. You know, we had that cataract with a jet pump on it, real fun driving through this just emerald colored or aqua colored river drove up around fished a side channel got to do some more wading got a couple of decent fish keith caught a nice fish and uh just the day was our we're two hours into the day at this point it's already the whole trip's a success jammed up a little further to this one section that was like real slow moving and very even and wide and deep not like a plunge pool like if you're trying to take a trip with me here uh like a real, just a real wide, deep, kind of expansive area of the river. And uh, it didn't look like much. And then Finya started walking the boat. And uh, so he was out of the boat holding the boat. And we were blasting these beetles, Keith and I, upstream and uh, throwing pretty long casts back up into the current and letting them drift down. And, uh, and we were not far from uh, Lake Desierto. And uh, I it was just having one of those days where every time that fly hit the water, just something I was doing, some kind of energy was pulsing through my soul, I guess, because I was knocking them dead. I was catching fish every several casts, and these fish are not small fish. I mean, 14 inches would have been a small one, 21 would have been on the top side, top end, which are, and those aren't guide, that's not guide math. Those numbers aren't inflated, I promise you. Finney wouldn't let me. He had a measuring uh, tape on top of his cooler so he audited me once or twice and we were pretty close then a half an inch anyway um, so yeah so he's walking the boat we're just throwing these long casts back upstream walking speed current just watching these beautiful brown trout lazily float up and sip these beetles and it was outstanding uh, and it, like I said, it was just one of those days. Finally, Keith Keith swapped spots with me and said, hey, you take, because one of us was working straight upstream close to the bank in like 12 inches of water. 
12 inches of walking speed water. And you would have thought, no way, there's fish in there. And uh, so I took the bank side, Keith took the outside, and uh, and then I started pulling them off the bank at like 12 inches of water. I mean, just the, the fish behavior is so cool there. These fish are so wild, and uh, they're, they're just, they don't behave the same way that a lot of our trout back home do. But it's really got me wondering, you know, if I employed some of the less orthodox strategies that these guides did if I would find myself having some of the success that they do um, and, and approaching things a little bit differently because yeah these fish were on the soft edges and uh, I was really impressed by you know their knowledge of you know confidence that we would fish some of the water that were anyway Keith swapped out to the big the, the deeper end and finally he started to catch up a little bit knock out some nice fish so that was great super successful you know you can follow our instagram feed in order um to kind of follow along even while you're doing this podcast but there's a handful of photos from that trip and finally we got up to this the lake um and the river that we jet boated up was an outflow to a lake we come up into this lake that's just like one of the most beautiful places i've ever seen i mean just right at the gates of the mountains there's ginormous peaks all around us and uh we were still wade fishing, and uh, I walked around um, the circumference of one of the shores and uh, stuck a couple of nice fish in the lake, which is so cool when you get to see those beautiful brown trout float up kind of from the abyss and lazily come for that beetle. Um, and they sip those beetles so slow because the beetle is not a flight risk. It's not just all of a sudden going to fly away. And these trout know when they're the only other trout around. They don't really compete for food because there isn't an incredibly high trout population at most of these places. There's just the right amount of trout. So they just float up so slow. And uh, in the afternoon, I, I'm thinking, yeah, it's got to be about time to eat lunch. And uh, the guide asks me uh, what time it is. He's like, he walks over and, hey, what time is it? And I was going to, like, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to mess with him. And I'm going to tell him it's 3.30 and he's going to be like, oh, my God, it's 3.30. Uh, I look at my watch, it's 3.15. So there really wasn't a mess. I thought it was like noon, one. Uh, these days just fly by. So we, we didn't even eat lunch yet. So we jumped back in the boat, and he jet-boated us up, and we made like this classic Chilean guide lunch, you know, with a uh, carcuterie board. I think that's the name of a carcuterie board, which is sausage and cheese and um, nuts and crackers and all that and then we had soup and just uh, just outstanding lunch glass of chilean wine and, and we pretty much wrapped it up for the day we're like let's just tour around and, and relax a little bit we caught plenty of fish uh we fooled around fish just a little bit more but we wound up back at the lodge at like 7 30 probably you know by the time we fooled around so like long fishing day on day one uh, Gear-wise, I fished the same fly the entire day. I fished a, a hand-tied beetle pattern um, because you can't really find... The flies that are tied for these trips, like, and you buy... Even at Reds, we have the be I believe we have the best trout fly selection of any shop out there, period. And even a lot of the ones that we have just aren't quite right. And uh, they have a lot of crap tied on them. And uh, you don't want to confuse the trout with mixed messages and a whole bunch of flashy shit tied onto it. Just trust me on this. You want a nice, clean-looking fly with some flash on the belly, but the fish needs to understand what it is and not have yellow, green, blue, and red all in the same fly like some of this stuff I see tied up. So uh, 
Yeah, you can see on the Instagram feed kind of the prototype of that beetle. If you're planning a trip to Chile uh, or Argentina and plan to use that beetle, like check our website and just search for uh, Patagonia beetle and see if we got those up for sale, the hand-tied ones yet. So uh, gear-wise, I fished uh, Sage X 5 weight all day. was super happy with it. That's the only rod I used. Uh, used Scientific Anglers, Amplitude, uh, Weightboard 5, Floating Line. Um, set of casts like an absolute dream. So uh, I fished my 5 weight all day. It was great. Uh, Keith fished a 6 weight Asquith. Uh, he was kind of you know lukewarm about it. He likes a 6 weight NRX Plus uh, is his preferred rod. So for what that information is worth. Um, so that kind of wraps up day one. Um, all anglers went all sorts of places. I can't possibly, uh, summarize everywhere, uh, everyone went. Uh, so I won't even attempt to do it. Um, but people fish small rivers, big rivers, spring creeks, uh, so on, uh, and so forth. So, uh, day two, I floated the Simpson River uh, with uh, Mandinga, was my guide. Uh, and I can't say enough about these guides. Mandinga's been guiding uh, damn near 20 years. And uh, he's just a stud. He's 39 years old. Started, started guiding when he was like 18, 19-ish. And uh, was actually trained uh, initially by one of my good friends, Mike Agee, uh, of Agee Outfitting, back in the old days when there was a lot more. Uh, American guides down there, but these Chilean guides, man, they have just, they have really take the ball and run with it. I mean, these guys are the best trout guides because in, it's, you know, we have great, there's great guides all over the United States, but the, the long season, these guys get a solid seven month season, the way the weather rotates there. And, uh, they fish spring creeks, big lakes, little lakes, big rivers, small rivers, rapids, uh, you know, smooth, slick rivers that are like tailwaters. They fish brown trout, rainbows, um, small bugs, small technical dry fly fishing, small emergers, all the way up to number four type beetles. So they they get a really um, diverse exposure to the fisheries. And, and Rodrigo is one of the best trout guides I've ever had the pleasure of fishing with. But he took us down uh, the Simpson Canyon, which is like super rugged flow. It was awesome. And... Uh, I, when I go to Chile, I am primarily fishing dry. So I'll fish streamers, I'll fish a dropper once in a while, but, um, and I'm not an ass about it, but I just prefer not to nymph because I think, you, you know, as long as you, you're a good caster and you stay the course, I just don't think it's necessary to be satisfied. Um, but, you know, don't be opposed to it. Uh, so Keith nymphed, um, and I just threw dries. And the front half of the day, I think I caught more, you know, solid trout just you know searching with my beetle and uh, you know that's a really long float so we just kind of had to fish a little bit push 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 do the rapids fish a little bit push 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 do the rapids that kind of thing um, and it is a very special float and a very unique float not everybody will get to do that one um, because there's only a couple of guides uh, there that it's a very technical uh, piece of water to get through um, so that is one that's kind of unique um I love the fishing in there. There's beautiful, especially the big rainbows in there. Uh, Keith hooked a couple of big rainbows on dry flies that were sitting suspended under foam lines in 50, like 10 to 15 feet of water. I mean, think of like an abyss. And it's a small river. You can cast across the whole thing in many places. And these rainbows are sitting 12 inches under the surface in 15 feet of water, sipping emergers. 
and they look like steelhead sitting out there. I mean, they're twenty, so they're twenty-two to twenty-six <clears throat> inches. Keith hooked into a couple of those, and it was just absolutely mind-blowing watching those fish just float under those foam lines. Just like fish behavior, we don't see outside of like the Missouri River. You don't really see that on a small freestone river uh, in North America very much. Um, these fish just have a really interesting feeding pattern because partially because they don't have ospreys there. And so these fish are willing to sit suspended, and it's just, man, it gets your heart going. Uh, but the fishing was a mix of nymphs. Um, these guys have fished kind of western, you know, Montana-style nymphing with a thingamabobber and a couple of nymphs. But what's crazy about it is the water that these guys find these fish in is often like frog water, dead still. Like, you know, there will be like rapids, and like in America, like most of our rivers, the, the Simpson has so much insect life in it that the fish don't need to hold in the riffles. They can hold just in the slick, dead still water. There's so much food availability there. And they just get, these fish get large sitting in those soft edges. Uh, and the river's very well oxygenated, so they don't need to sit in the riffles. But um, he, we were nymphing in like almost non-moving, dead still water. Um, and it was really interesting for me to look at, you know, how some of their strategies that I got to wonder... You know how much of that could I could employ to my own employ at my own river, just going. You know what? Maybe I don't know everything about you know the places where I'm fishing, and maybe I should start to poke around some of these different water types that I don't normally uh, target. And so I found that super interesting. Uh, you know, we caught plenty of big fish, caught a handful on a beetle. You know, a handful of really nice ones on a beetle. Caught a few on a streamer. Uh, you know, caught you know plenty on nymphs. Super scenic float just a very rich experience you know we saw one other boat floating that 12 mile section all day and then we saw two wade fishermen at the very end of the day after we were all done so lots of solitude incredible box canyon you know thousand foot tall mountains go up on either side of that box canyon in there uh it is a really neat float and totally different type of river think of it like a big spring creek in the sense that it's got that much insect life, but with rapids. And that's really what it felt like. It was like a, spring, a giant spring creek with rapids. And uh, a lot of fun. Totally different than the glacial system that we fished the day before, uh, which the fish don't have access to a lot of those little bugs. And they feed very opportunistically on very large beetles. And on the Simpson, we threw very small beetles uh, and nymphs and emergers, like classic um, CDC caddis, you know, para atoms, that type of classic stuff. Uh, and then we did not, we didn't, we didn't, weren't able to catch any of the fish, the big ones that were sitting suspended on dry droppers. We had to take that back. I did catch one on a dry dropper. I presented to it with a pure dry fly numerous times. Wouldn't take it. I did put a dropper 18 inches under a dry fly as that was the, what was the, the fish was eating nymphs just under the foam line. But for the most part, I stuck with dries all day. I ran a dry dropper just a little bit and, and had great fishing. Uh, but traditional nymphing, spot and stock dry fly fishing, a few streamers, and just a great day on the Simpson Canyon. Um, but the downside of that day was we spent almost all day in the boat. So uh, I walked a few little spots real quick, but there really wasn't time to invest fishing on foot. So day three, uh, we fished with Lalo, who is uh, the... Uh, the funniest, uh, funniest man in Chile, in my opinion. Uh, guy is absolutely hilarious. 
And all the guides speak excellent English, by the way. They learn it in elementary school. And uh, I just find it really enhances the experience, not only like the fishing strategy of like learning better strategies than what you know now, uh, but just you learn about their culture, their family, what they do, how things work, history, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's really no, there's really zero language barrier, I would say. Um, once in a while, you'll use a slang, you know, piece of slang or whatever. But if you if you if if you talk straight like a respectable human being, they'll understand, you know, everything you're saying. So day three, I said, Lalo, we need to wade fish all day. I can't be in a boat. He says, Okay, man, I know what to do. And uh, so we hiked into a massive canyon, and uh, there's no way to float. Well, you could, in theory, you could float through there, but nobody does it. We spent all day hiking a canyon, glacial colored water, fast rapids, picking apart edges, sight casting to a handful of fish in pools, watching um, you know trout feed suspend you know sit suspended in ten feet of water sipping emergers. Uh, we I, I think the biggest fish I caught was about fourteen inches uh, on that walk, but it was one of the most memorable days of trout fishing ever had. It's like everything you dream about. I saw some twenty four inch fish. I couldn't get them, couldn't catch them. Even the great one, Joe Roder, could not catch these fish. Uh, the thing about brown trout is they can be very selective. When they want to be picky, they are unbelievably picky. When they want to feed like a, you know, like a rabbit, like a, you know, starving grizzly bear, they'll feed like a starving grizzly bear. But when they're not hungry, pretty tough to get. So I encountered a couple of those big boys uh, in this river and just couldn't couldn't turn them. Um, but it was so much fun trying. Uh, thing about Chile is like it's great fishing but you also got to be able to throw a fly rod I'll, you know I'll probably you know at the end of this I'll, I'll kind of give just you know this basic rundown what you should be doing or expecting when you get there but uh, day three we hiked 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 fished that big canyon and we hiked and we went down to the lower Paloma River uh, and in uh, wade fish these braided side channels totally different than the canyon fishing we hiked out and fished braided channels. I fished dry flies the entire day. Um, except for I sight casting at those big browns, I threw both a streamer and a nymph a couple times. Uh, unsuccessful. So wade fished all day, great day. One of the funner days down there. Didn't catch anything real big, but just, yeah, it really stands out. Like as I reflect back on the week, super satisfying experience. Um, and then that night was our lodge change-up night. So the same owner, Sebastian Galilei, owns both the Cinco Rios Lodge, which is their Instagram handle. Go follow them on Instagram. Uh, and then uh, Estancia del Zorro. Uh, and that one is in the High Pampas. Both equally great lodges. Unbelievable hospitality. Super high quality, great beds, great linens, great food, all that stuff. Like you feel like, you know why it's five thousand bucks a week. Um, it is great fishing, great food. Cut the couples that go have a great time. It's awesome. So anyway, we transfer. We go back. We have a couple of cocktails at Cinco Rios. We get in the van. We transport. We do the one, you know, about an hour and a half drive up into the mountains. Again, super scenic, a lot of fun. The transfer is great. We get up in the high country. And there's just miles of beautiful rolling grass and stunted growth, little trees. And we're up way high in the mountains. And uh, Estancia del Zorro, what makes it famous is the El Zorro Spring Creek, which runs right through the, uh, the Estancia's ranch or property there. 
So we transfer up there, we have a great dinner, meet the new crew. The Stancy Dills Oral is more like a rustic, classic, real Chile Lodge. It is the oldest standing building uh, in the entire area. Um, I don't know, you know how far that area expands, but it was built in 1917, and they've just they've remodeled it and cared for it. It's a giant ranch. It accommodates up to 12 anglers. Um, so we transfer up, have a great time. You know, probably stay up way too late drinking wine because all of the wine is included. I drank at least one thousand dollars worth of wine this week. Uh, so. But the next day, uh, I got up and I wanted to go test fish some stuff for Sebastian with his head guide uh, about two hours north of there. And so he and I took off in the morning. Everybody else had their assignments. Some people wanted to go horseback riding and fishing and ride these beautiful, uh, you know, Chilean style saddles on these incredible horses. Uh, you know, the, the gauchos of the high pampas are some of the finest horsemen on earth and it's just a thing of beauty watching those guys work horses uh but a handful of people went and rode horses that was awesome some people fished uh the Nidiwau river some people went to our uh, four anglers went to argentina two fished uh the rio maya and two people fished uh a different spring creek uh over in argentina did the border crossing got the passport stamp checked that box but i went um and i fished a a, several private lakes that Sebastian just uh, got access to that have some absolutely enormous brown trout in them. Uh, but I, unfortunately, I it was really windy uh, and I struck out on the new lakes and so I did not get one named after me. Uh, and I think by next year when I get there, they'll already be named after somebody else who caught the first trophy fish there. But what I did do is I went to, um, I spent part of my time on one of the lakes that is more well-established. Uh, I won't say the name of it because it's kind of their, you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of one of their special deals. But they keep a boat in the water there um, on that lake, and they kept the boat in the water on another lake. But went to that lake and caught several just absolute dandy fish. I mean, if I just stuck on that lake the entire time, uh, that entire day, I definitely would have tallied up uh, quite a bit of gross tonnage. But what's cool about these lakes is these are not glacial lakes. These are like spring-fed lakes up in the high country. And the amount of, like, just biomass, the leeches, the dragonfly nymphs, the damselflies, the scuds is incredible. These fish grow so fast. They're all wild trout in this lake. So wildly reproducing brown trout in this lake. And they are, the, like, the smallest one I might have caught would have been, like, a 19-inch football. You know, 20 inches like average, maybe 21 inches like average. Fat, well-fed, hard-fighting, hard-jumping footballs, and we catch them on really just traditional lake setups. We throw micro leeches. You know, when you flip the rocks over, the guides will show you how many leeches are in these lakes. It's no wonder the fat trout grows so fast. There's scuds and there's dragonfly nymphs. And uh, so we fish, um, we fish those setups sometimes with a floating line, sometimes with a sinking line, sometimes a hopper dropper. They love to suspend that dragonfly nymph underneath like a Chernobyl ant or a beetle and uh, twitch it a little bit along the weed edges. Like I learned some really cool lake fishing t techniques from these guys that I'm, I'm pretty amped to, to utilize back home on some of my lakes up in uh, the Columbia River Basin. Uh, but the first night was, was I got a couple of fish on the lake, super windy, crazy windy. Uh, Hector caught the biggest fish. I rode for him because I just got tired of casting in that wind. And uh, then I went to their, their out camp, which is like, it's, they call it camping. It is like, it is super glamping. It is like, 
There's these incredible diesel stoves, like I'll say kerosene, they're really kerosene stoves. Kerosene stoves in these yurts with full beds, uh, like twin beds, but I mean by full is like a box bringing a mattress and comforters and nice linens <laughs> at this camp. Uh, incredibly nice. And uh, so they have their game changer RVs there for uh, to use as a restroom and some cooking and power generation. They, uh, the camp host, uh, host, there's Tomas and Nico were there, and uh, these guys cooked a beef uh, tenderloin uh, over the fire and uh, cooked vegetables over the fire and drank them again, drank much wine, had a great time, just unbelievable camping experience. But when you go to Estancia del Zor, there are some options to add on those camping experiences so that you get access to some of these lakes and other creeks uh, that are too far for from the lodge. So there's no shortage of options. So when I was there the next day, um, I only camped one night just to check it out. Uh, I fished the, the upper, 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 upper Niitiwau River, which is full of like little brown trout. Uh, and then I went back down to that lake and I fished a spring creek in the outflow of that lake that has, a, it's just beautiful, one of the prettiest places I've ever fly fished this the Spring Creek runs through this just this little canyon, this this just like Eden, basically the Garden of Eden. Basically, there's Spring Creek running through it, and there's flowers and trees and mountains and yada yada yada. But you could see a lot of fish in there. They're smaller, but it's a really nice mix to be able to fish trophy trout of the lake, and then do some sight casting to smaller trout and try your hand at the Spring Creek for part of the day, and then head back, uh, walk back up to the boat that's parked on the lake and do them both at the same time, and then catch a couple big trout on the lake. So um, I stuck some dandies uh, on the lake, and then uh, I went and, and fished that private lake for a little bit longer. Uh, they call it the lagoon. Fished the lagoon a little longer. Did not hook a giant fish on the lagoon. Uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to undersell or oversell it. You'll have a shot at a 30-inch brown trout on that lake. I mean, a 30-inch brown trout. That number's not, throw, I don't throw that around very often. I mean, a 24-inch fish is a legitimately taped 24-inch fish will blow your mind. Most people think they're like 28. But 30-inch uh, brown trout on the lake, I've yet to get one there. Uh, but you don't go grind it away all day on that lake. You fish it, you know, when it's optimal. If you can see a fish and sight cast to it, we do it. If we don't, we don't beat ourselves to death. There are some really good options to go get numbers of fish in the immediate vicinity. And... Uh, I think that's what's so mind-blowing here, like, before you come down, is, like, there is water everywhere. There are springs coming out of these mountains. There are spring creeks and rivers and lakes everywhere in Patagonia. And uh, so it, there's really no shortage of options. So if you, if you have kind of a lean day and you only get, like, a fish or two and it's really big, and then the next day you're like, hey, I need some numbers, just tell your host Tell your host or, you know, pull the head guy aside and be like, hey, I need I need to get some body count tomorrow and they'll take care of it. So uh, I went camping. It was awesome. I love it. I did the same thing last year for a couple of days on the end of my trip. I did it in the middle of the trip this time. Uh, and then I went back to camp and had a just a great meal, um, joined back up with the group. And uh, they, everyone was on cloud nine just raving about their various experiences that they'd had and Argentina and on the Spring Creek and on the Pedregoso uh, and on the Rio Maya uh, and at Estancia Drangulo is one of the ranches in Argentina and everybody's just they're on cloud nine. The next day, um, I think we're on like 
yeah, day, yeah, we're on like day six now. Gosh, I don't know. I camped, fished the lakes, fished the lakes four, day four, day five. Uh, yeah, so day six. Uh, day six, uh, a good part of the group went, and uh, nearby there is a local uh, local uh, Estancia owner that Sebastian knows. Uh, I think his name is uh, Alejandro. Uh, took a group that signed up for it. Uh, by signing up, I meant they mentioned that they want to go, and they left really early, and they went up and got to see 20. I repeat, two zero Andean condors come off the roost first thing in the morning. And in case you don't know, the Andean condor is one of the, uh, I think it is the largest bird on earth. There's a giant like albatross that rivals it for wingspan, but the Andean condor is essentially considered the biggest bird on earth. And um, I, I had seen them before, and so I opted not to go, but... Uh, they went up and drove a pickup truck up to the top of this, uh, basically did some four buy-in and took a pickup truck up to the top of this thing and, uh, not far from the Estancia. Uh, and, uh, so it was like maybe an hour it took them to get up there. This, they had an early breakfast, slammed a cup of coffee, jumped in the pickups and they went up and did this, uh, with a, with another local rancher. And, uh, he was a hell of a tour guide. Um, everybody loved it. And, Many people said that were on that trip that that was the highlight of the trip was seeing those Andean condors. Uh, and they, they're spectacular bird. But what's even better is you don't, you don't have to set an entire day aside. That group came back and they fished the balance of the day at one of like three different rivers. One of them drove to the Valley of the Moon and fished the Needywow. That was Keith. He had an awesome experience. Uh, and then uh, Phil and Mary went to the uh, Pedregoso. Uh, Susan went horseback riding that afternoon, and she rode down to the Pedregoso. She's a fishing fanatic, but she was able to withstand for fishing and had like preferred to ride horses and had an amazing time. Uh, and then uh, a couple of groups that didn't do the, the condors went, went to Argentina the last day. Everybody kind of split up, and then uh, Tommy and Kayla, another couple, on the trip, just they fished the Estancia with uh, their guide Felipe, uh, who is one of the most entertaining human beings I've ever been around. Huge shout out to Felipe. Uh, and I fished. Uh, I my goal the last day was to not get in a vehicle to go do anything, and uh, I was successful. I walked down uh, in the morning after a very casual breakfast. I left the my lodge room and put my waders on and walked down to the creek. And Felipe said. Uh, yeah, man, uh, fish from the bridge uh, up to the fence. And I was like, man, it doesn't look very far. I was like, well, how far should I be by lunch? And he said, he was like, man, just, you should be there at lunch at that fence. I fished like three or 400 yards of the Spring Creek, in the Azores Spring Creek. And, and uh, the guides there that guide the Spring Creek religiously, they're somewhat dry. They'll do any kind of fishing, and they know how to do it well. I mean, from check nymphing, you know, like, Chilean style nymphing, you know, where it's like they're not, they don't have euro rods and ciders and light tippet. These guys are using like, you know, 2x and 1x tippet, jig head flies, but they know how to catch brown trout from underneath cut banks by any means necessary, trust me. But they're real dry fly purists and enthusiasts. Their fly tying skills, their knowledge of entomology, their ability to sight fish, if fish around corners blind where you throw, because the fish are spooky, you throw a hook cast around the corner. They've got skills that just blow your mind. They're awesome guys. But Felipe told me 
to fish from the bridge to the to the fence and don't go faster than that by lunchtime because at lunchtime we go back up and we have a giant lunch up at the Estancia and have a glass of wine and then a little nap so I didn't want to miss that so I fished uh, from the bridge up and Felipe picked out a couple of little tiny hoppers uh, in my fly box and one caddis and said you know fish these and uh, you have to understand if you haven't fished spring creeks before most spring creeks at least the ones that I fish really aren't hardly moving at all there's very 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 little current especially later in the summer it gets the flow gets really low so a lot of these trout are hiding in these deeper edges but they're hiding up well take that back I, I saw some fish in as little as 6 to 12 inches of water there is so much food in this spring creek so many scuds and so much life that they don't even hardly need moving water to get supremely fat in this creek uh, Felipe, Felipe was joking that these trout are so fat they often die of a heart attack when, when you hook them <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I just, I, I essentially, I go, you know what, I'm not going to fish a nymph today either. I'm going to, I'm not getting in a truck. I'm walking from the Estancia and I'm fishing a dry fly all day. It's my last day and I'm fishing totally unguided, which I love to do that because it reminds me how, um, how much I rely on the guide, which I don't necessarily like. I want to be able to, to make decisions and, and kind of survive on my own, so to speak. So I, <clears throat> I just started working a hopper and just punching it up under the banks in these real slow pieces anywhere it was shady i fire it up in there i twitch it i leave it for 30 seconds twitch it for leave it for 30 seconds and then go to the next spot and surgically worked my way up that creek and uh i caught two trout on a hopper and i was just over the moon i caught two trout by about 10 30 or 11 and uh, I was just absolutely over the moon. I, I was really happy just surgically picking it apart with the dry fly. Nothing except my, me concentrating on fishing, totally immersed like a hunter in its prey. And I was loving it. And uh, I'd forgot my, you know, I was using my phone to do all of my photos and videos and stuff on this trip. And I should probably do another podcast on photography, but I'm trying to learn how to be a better photographer by not taking, you know, big SLR cameras and just setting everything up really well and understanding how to take a proper picture. And uh, so if you look at our Instagram, believe it or not, all those photos were taken uh, on a Samsung, uh, Samsung phone. And uh, anyway, uh, Hector, uh, the guy, I was, I was, uh, he... I knew I'd left my phone, and uh, so I kind of knew why he stopped on the road. But right about the time he stopped on the road, I saw brown, this trout rise. It was the first one I'd seen rising. And I belly crawled my way up, peeked over the edge. I could see the trout holding there, and I just barely peeked over the edge because these trout are smart. They're big, and they're smart. And uh, then I belly crawled back down around, and I took my hopper off, and I put on a caddis that Felipe had suggested. And... Uh, just about that time, Hector was honking the horn because he wanted me to come get my phone from him in the truck. And I'm like, ah, I, I think he wants me to come get my phone. So I ignored it. So finally, Hector's like, well, he just decided to walk it over to me. It was quite a little walk, but he decided to walk it over to me. And uh, so he comes walking over, and, and he sees what I'm doing by that point, him crawling around. And there's only one reason I'm belly crawling up the bank to, to look down in the, in the water. I belly crawl back. And Hector's there, and uh, and I false cast a couple of times, and I, I should have videoed the the whole thing, but 
I false cast a couple of times right when he comes down. I drop my caddis and I lay the tippet right over the blades of grass, throwing back upstream. And once you, once you commit the fly to a cast, I did not want my tippet laying on the grass. I won't pretend for a second that was intentional. But once you commit to a cast, you have to live with it. There's no, you don't get, you know, second, you don't get second attempt, really. Tippet lays over the grass. Brown truck, literally, it sits there for a couple of seconds. The fly's moving just right, but it's about to bind up. And the brown trout just comes and sips that caddis pretty much right off the blades of grass. Hook it up, and I got the back end of it because Hector just happened to be there, so he flipped my phone on. I did document the back half of that, and I was just like, that was my most memorable moment of, uh, of day six for sure. It was just absolutely topped it off. Landed the fish on a small caddis, sight casting on the Spring Creek. Um, unguided, just, just so satisfied with that because that Spring Creek is technical and challenging. I mean, it's really what gave Estancia Del Zorro its entire start. Uh, but it'll burn anglers out. It's technical. It's challenging. Um, the water itself is not the prettiest Spring Creek. It's very off-colored, tea-colored. There are a lot of weeds, um, which you'll look at it and go, it's not really what you picture of a Spring Creek, but it, it that is a Spring Creek. It's just it's continually spring-fed, uh, and it doesn't move on current. It moves every all the water's moving underground essentially to oxygenate it and, and keep it fresh. Uh, but to be able to walk up that Spring Creek, do some sight casting, not leave the lodge, not have to get a car, have lunch at the lodge, take a 20-minute nap in my own bed, and then go back out and fish all afternoon, that was, like, such a cool experience. And uh, I could do that. I don't know if i do it all six days, but I could do it, like, three of the days, that, that program of just fishing the Ellsworth Spring Creek. Um, stuff learned. Um, come prepared to cast in the wind. You know, good good lines, good rods, um, something you're comfortable with. Learn to double haul. Learn to roll cast in the wind with a tailwind. Uh, learn that Patagonia roll cast where it's a wide sweeping roll cast where you bring it back real wide with the rod tip and then roll cast overhead. Uh, learn, practice your dry fly fishing. I don't care if you go out and the fishing stinks. Fish dry flies a lot before you get down here. I see it again and again. Uh, where anglers have spent a lot of time learning to nymph fish. Um, a lot of it was spent with a guide, and they haven't learned to fish a dry fly at 40 feet or more, 50 feet. Um, the trip is inviting for all skill levels. Um, even first-time anglers and, and, and novice anglers are going to have an outstanding time. There are fisheries for you here. If you want to have that top level, if you're an experienced angler, you want to have that top level Patagonian experience, polish up your casting game um, just make sure that you're prepared to make the most out of your trip so cast dry flies a lot and when i say cast dry flies even when you're streamer fishing or leech fishing a lot of times it's going to be sight casting and you need to drop that leech delicately within a reasonable distance of that trout maybe you're going to drop a dragonfly nymph uh, on a trout you know a cruising trout in one of the lakes it's the same principle you have to have clean leader turnover you can't you can't salvage a shitty cast with four men's and then let it drift down to the fish. If that's all you have the ability to do, no problemo. They have a solution for you. But like I said, if you're if you're dreaming of that top level Patagonia experience, you won't regret getting some casting lessons. Um, come out and get them from me if you need to, and I will help get you prepared for this trip because I want you to enjoy all those same trophy experiences that I've enjoyed uh, in my trips uh, to Patagonia. 
As far as flies go, regrets, I would bring more little tiny hoppers. Uh, I'm going to make some modifications to the Patagonia beetles. Um, and that's really it. Um, uh, smaller leeches, I would say jet black smaller leeches. That's one thing that uh, I did mooch a couple of those off the guide. The guides have flies, but they don't want to provide you flies all week. Um, these guys are guiding their brains out for seven months. They do not want to go home and tie flies after spending 10 to 11 hours with you. Um, they want to go home, get some sleep, and get up early so they can guide the next day and guide hard. And that's what you want them doing too. So um, small le smaller leeches, uh, probably a bigger variety of, of heavier tippets from 0x to 3x. Uh, I was a little light on options for heavier tippets. Uh, Good tapered leaders. I changed tapered leaders several times throughout the week, and I was really glad to have a clean knotless leader for the site casting. Um, tippet knots often get hung in the weeds on the Spring Creek um, and bind, so I really encourage you to get big variety of nine foot, you know, three x to nine foot two x and one x tapered leaders. Uh, as far as rods go, running a good uh, weight forward floating line. Uh, have a five and a six with you on the trip. I brought two fives and a seven. I used my seven on the lakes a lot. The seven I had was not the right rod for this. It was a Sage Maverick you know, saltwater seven weight. Anything under 50 feet, the rod just, it doesn't, I didn't like the way it loaded up. You know, I could solve that with a line, but like an all water seven weight was pretty handy for the lakes um, in that wind and throwing leeches. The other thing I would say is make sure you bring a variety of sinking leaders. Uh, the sinking leaders allowed me, when you're switching and you're using the same rod and reel for rivers, lakes, and spring creeks, like say your favorite six weight, you're going to use that rod on a lot of different fisheries. You may not want to change and put a whole different spool and a sinking line on, but maybe you're like, oh, we're going to fish a floating line for the next hour. You can just take a Versa leader or a poly leader off or on and make like, it takes about two minutes to make a change. And it's just so much easier than swapping out a spool. And uh, those Versa leaders land delicately. I didn't throw, and I haven't thrown a lot of giant streamers in Koyaiki. Um, these fish, these fish feed well on small flies. So, like, I'm not worried about the turnover, the the, the heavy sink tip turning it over or sink. True sink tip line. Those Versa leaders work very well for dragonfly nymphs and micro leeches, uh, and um, any type of swimming nymph um, that you might use in a lake environment. And uh, if you're on a river environment, um, chances are you have enough, a big river, you have enough back cast that you don't need to roll cast a heavy streamer, um, which is where the verse leader kind of sucks. But bring, bring several verse leaders. Uh, those are really critical. Uh, as far as clothing goes, uh, I'm going to eventually put a link to this podcast, uh, a link to a full blog that I'm going to write. Uh, but clothing-wise, uh, good windbreaker is critical, like a lightweight Gore-Tex wading jacket. I wore one made by Sitka Gear called a Cloudburst jacket. Uh, we sell a few Sims products, like uh, just their ultra-light kind of tropical-style rain jackets are really good for just a windbreaker. Uh, you definitely want a Gore-Tex jacket, but when it rains here, it doesn't rain like the Northwest. You know, if you're familiar with the Northwest, from another part of the country, you have no idea. <laughs> And you probably already have the right type of rain jacket. You don't necessarily need that heavy-duty Sims G4 wading jacket uh, for, for summertime fishing down here. Now, if you're down here in October, November, December maybe, but if you're here in January, February, March, 
probably okay with just a lightweight jacket. Uh, as far as under my waders goes, uh, just a pair of this real light, um, real light, light fleece pants. I didn't get cold once. Um, it was a little windy. Maybe it'd get a little chill once in a while, but uh, I felt like having good buffs, hooded garments, um, so that you know you could keep the sun and the wind off your neck and ears and the sides of your face. So I really like wearing hoodies uh, and keeping that hood as a sun veil over my face, the sides of my face, and then a good buff. Uh, and sun gloves too. I'm a real believer or advocate of sun gloves uh, as well. I just wear the Sim Solarflex ones. So. Uh, it's kind of a good summary on the gear. You should absolutely consider this trip. If you got the means to do it, don't rule it out. Travel with Reds. Uh, we'll be doing a couple of weeks a year. Plan way out if you need to. Um, I'll get 20, 21 dates on the calendar uh, here right away, and then 2022 probably to follow. But get on this trip, whether it's my week or one of the other host weeks. Uh, I can help you plan the whole thing, and if the hosted week doesn't work for you, just hit me up, and uh, I can get you booked in. Uh, there's not another operation uh, in all of Patagonia for resident trout that I would endorse. Sebastian has unbelievable guides, and just he's got he's hooked up on the access for all the right spots, and uh, the food service, the whole thing, top to bottom, is just supreme value. So they will take care of you. Have no fear um, traveling back and forth, chilling back. So. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, stay tuned. Uh, watch our blog for the full breakdown with some video snippets and all that very soon.